Thank you for stopping by at the Movie Marquee. Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Thank you, and welcome to the Drive-In Movie Feature Review. Today, we're going to be reviewing Full Metal Jacket. With me is Ted. I wanted to see exotic Vietnam, the crown jewel of Southeast Asia. I wanted to meet interesting and stimulating people of an ancient culture and kill them. I wanted to be the first kid on my block to get a confirmed kill. And we also have Eric. Well, thank you very much, Ken. Can I be in charge for a while? Um, yeah, sure. Why not? And of course, my name is Ken. And this is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. With uh, wrapping up our Stanley Kubrick's four movie set, and Eric is going to give us the particulars. Eric? All right. Well, let's talk uh, Full Metal Jacket here. This movie was released on June 26, 1987. It had a budget of about $30 million and did about $45 million at the box office. It starred Matthew Modine as Private Joker, Adam Baldwin as Animal Mother, Vincent D'Onofrio as Private Pyle, R. Lee Ermey as Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, Dorian Harwood as Eight Ball, Arliss Howard as Private Cowboy, and Kevin Major Howard as Rafterman. Movie did pretty good at the box office, $45 million, not uh, the best, but it, it did really well. The critics actually really love this movie. Most of the critics. We'll go into some of the reviews here. Rotten Tomatoes certified fresh at 92% and the audience gave it 94. So across the board, Rotten Tomatoes love this one. Roger Ebert, not so much. Two and a half stars. And I'm going to read you here a little bit of what Roger Ebert said in his review. The last part of it pretty much sums it up. He goes, the movie has great moments. Ermy's speech to his men about the great marine marksmen of the past, Charles Whitman and Lee Harvey Oswald among them, is a masterpiece. The footage on the Paris Island obstacle course is powerful, but Full Metal Jacket is uncertain where to go, and the movie Climax, which Kubrick obviously intends to be a mighty moral revelation, seems phoned in from earlier war pictures. After what has already been said about Vietnam in the movies, Full Metal Jacket is too little too late. Two and wow. a half stars from Roger Ebert. Now, most of the other critics actually really like this movie. Jonathan Rosenblum at The Reader said it's elliptical, full of subtle inner rhymes and profoundly moving. This is the most tightly crafted Kubrick film since Dr. Strangelove. Newsweek said as brutally unsparring as Platoon was, it was ultimately warm and embracing. Kubrick's film is about as embracing as a full metal jacketed bullet in the gut. The New York Times said Kubrick's harrowing, beautiful, and characteristically eccentric new film about Vietnam is going to puzzle, anger, and I hope fascinate audiences as much as any film he has made to date. A film of immense and very rare imagination. 
The Washington Post said the most eloquent and exacting vision of the war to date, inspired with technique rather than overblown with it. Kubrick, the filmmaker's filmmaker, lays it all on the line for you. The reviews are really, really good on this one. There's a few that uh, weren't too good. Obviously, uh, Ebert's. The New Republic said after years of preparation in the hands of a man celebrated for his penetration and style, this picture adds almost nothing to our knowledge of the subject and adds it in a manner almost devoid of visual distinction. That was interesting with Roger Ebert. Uh, I was watching a clip from at the movies and him and Gene Sisko went back and forth on this Sisko liking it. Yeah. And Ebert kind of tearing it to shreds a yeah. little bit. Yeah, saying, he was. Saying that there was nothing original about this film. So I thought that was kind of weird coming from Ebert because before this, Ebert was the one reviewer that you didn't see a bad review from Ebert for Stanley Kubrick in any of his movies. He didn't have to go back like many others did for like 2001 or for The Shining. His reviews were right up front, but he doesn't particularly care for it. He was. He was comparing it to other uh, Vietnam movies of the era and from the late 70s, Apocalypse Now, Platoon. And yeah, I think it was real. I didn't see that clip, but I I read his full review and he was pretty harsh in it, to be honest with you. Really harsh. Roger Ebert is like one of my heroes. I usually am like in lockstep with him. I just don't see where he's coming from. He usually doesn't miss the boat that often, in my opinion, but he's off the mark on this. I think that's very shocking to me. It really is. Talking about Ebert, I will have to say the reason for this podcast is probably because of Cisco and Ebert, to be honest with you. Their at-the-movies reviews were ones that made me desire to want to review movies. And you're exactly right. That's exactly was my biggest motivation. I mean, I think we're all children of at-the-movies. That's how I sign off is to see you at the movies. I mean, that's what they said, and that's my little nod to them. I don't understand where he was coming from with that, but not to go off on an at the movies thing, but at the movies really molded how I watch what movies I wanted to see. And I wanted to know what they had to say. Leonard Malton is uh, another guy that pretty big right. with TV reviews of these movies and Richard Roper later on who took over for Gene Siskel. I actually lined myself with Roper a lot during that time frame as far as his reviews go. You were kind of either a Siskel or you were Ebert. You were kind of one or the other. But I think as time has gone on and I've grown older, I like to think of myself as a mesh of the two now. Well, let's talk to Ted about the plot. Ted, take it away. Full Metal Jacket tells the story of the Vietnam War through the eyes of the men who fought and died there. We are introduced to a platoon of Marine volunteers on their first day of boot camp. Their drill sergeant, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, is a battle-decorated and hardened man whose goal is to break down the recruits and mold them into war-ready Marines. He is extremely cruel to the members of the platoon. Hartman singles out two recruits, Private Joker and Private Pyle. The two men could not be more different. Private Joker is a wisecracking recruit who is good-natured but easily conforms to life in the Marines. Private Pyle, on the other hand, is an overweight, happy-go-lucky recruit who finds life in the Marines extremely difficult. Hartman sees in Private Joker the possibility of a leader and even names him platoon leader. In Private Pyle, Hartman doesn't see a man who has the mentality to become a Marine and constantly berates Private Pyle relentlessly, trying to break him down. Hartman directs Private Joker to look after and help Private Pyle become a better recruit. During a routine bed check, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman discovers the overweight Private Pyle has snuck a jelly donut into the barracks. After this discovery, Hartman decides that the platoon should suffer the consequences 
when Private Pyle inevitably screws up. This further alienates Private Pyle from the rest of the platoon and Private Joker. The result is the platoon decides to met out their own punishment on Private Pyle at night after lights out. The platoon takes bars of soap wrapped in a towel and beats Private Pyle about the chest and stomach. The result of the beating at the hands of his fellow platoon members causes Private Pyle to have a psychotic break. He retreats into himself and becomes withdrawn and vengeful. The new hardened Private Pyle does enough to graduate with the rest of the platoon to become a rifleman. Private Joker believes he has failed in his effort to help Private Pyle and feels guilty, but manages to graduate with the platoon and is designated as a military correspondent to Stars and Stripes. The night after graduation, Private Joker draws guard duty, and during guard duty, he hears noises coming from the bathroom. As he checks the bathroom, he notices Private Pyle sitting with his M14, loading bullets into a clip. Private Joker quickly realizes that Private Pyle has lost his mind. Private Pyle starts shouting at Private Joker and loads the clip into his M14 and starts to drill. With the commotion now loud and out of control, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman bursts into the bathroom and demands that Private Pyle hand over his loaded weapon. Private Pyle, seeing and hearing Hartman yelling at him again, shoots and kills Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. He then turns the weapon on himself and commits suicide. We are then transported to Vietnam and Private Joker is now in country and writing for Stars and Stripes. He has befriended a new Marine who is fresh and not battle-tested, Rafterman. Rafterman, like Joker, works for Stars and Stripes as a photographer. They are stationed at the base in Da Nang. Joker's commanding officer delegates the writing assignments for the next issue. Joker announces that he has heard that there may be enemy action around the Tet New Year celebration. His assumptions are quickly disregarded and they retreat back to the barracks for the night. During discussions in the barracks between the men, they realize they are under attack and the Tet Offensive has begun. The men fight to defend their base from attack. The next day, Joker makes a wisecrack at the expense of the commanding officer, and the commanding officer sends Joker and Rafterman out into the fighting to report on actions underway to take the city of Huey from along the Perfume River. Upon arriving with the platoon, Joker and Rafterman are assigned to Joker discovers his friend from boot camp, Private Cowboy, is a member of the platoon. The platoon is nicknamed the Lust Hogs. They have seen quite a bit of action and are trying to take back the city of Huey. Cowboy introduces Joker and Rafterman to the platoon, and Joker immediately has conflict with a particularly crazy Marine, Animal Mother. After a firefight that kills the lieutenant and a booby trap that kills the next commanding officer, Cowboy becomes platoon leader of the Lust Hogs. With the fighting hot and heavy, Cowboy and the Lust Hogs end up lost and confused. They finally figure out where they need to be and where to report. To get there, Cowboy decides that they should go through a section of the city. Cowboy sends out a scout into the city section, and the scout is wounded by a sniper. Scared and frustrated, the platoon medic ignores Cowboy's orders and rushes in to save the scout. He is then immediately shot by the sniper. Cowboy decides to withdraw, leaving the two wounded men to die. Animal Mother then ignores Cowboy's order to withdraw and rushes in to rescue the two injured men. Reaching the injured men, 
animal mother discovers the location of the sniper as the sniper shoots and kills the two injured men. Animal Mother then calls out to Cowboy to come forward to root out the sniper. Cowboy, Joker, Rafter Man, and two other Marines join Animal Mother. As Cowboy is relaying messages to his commanding officer, he is shot by the sniper and killed. With Animal Mother now the platoon leader, he decides to exact revenge on the sniper. They break into groups and go into the building they believe the sniper is in. Joker, sneaking around inside the building, comes upon the sniper, a 12-year-old girl. He lowers his M16 to shoot her, and it jams, causing her to turn around and begin shooting at Joker. Luckily for Joker, Rafterman is there and shoots the sniper and critically wounds her. The rest of the men join Rafterman and Joker. Animal Mother decides to let her suffer and die in agonizing pain. Joker says no as the girl is begging for mercy to be shot. Animal Mother tells Joker that if he wants to do it, he should shoot her. Joker, wrestling with the decision, lowers his sidearm and shoots and kills the sniper in cold blood. Thank you, Ted, for that wonderful plot of Full Metal Jacket. We also want to add that they walk away singing the Mickey Mouse tune, I believe. M-I-C-K-E-Y. So this movie basically starts with basic training. We are thrown right into basically the barracks, right into the sergeant belittering his new recruits. So my question to you here is, how do you feel about basic training and how the sergeant talks to each individual and how he makes them feel? What's your first impressions? I like the beginning of the movie where it starts off. They're all getting their haircuts. They're all getting ready for life in the Marines. I think that's very realistic. And I think the use of Arlie Ermey as the drill sergeant, since he was a past drill sergeant, I believe. He retired in 1971, if I remember right. And he is your stereotypical drill sergeant of the Vietnam era. I don't believe today they talk to the Marines this way in boot camp. But at that era, I mean, it's realistic and it's in your face. I mean, I love love how it goes as he's walking in, introducing himself to all the people there. I love it. He's particularly harsh. Yes. He's designed to be over the top. I think all DIs, all drill instructors of that era, I think that is a very common trend. I don't know if he's typically over the top. I think that is typically how it was in that era. Could it be because of Vietnam? Yeah. Because this is wartime and maybe they have to get these guys more ready for war than ever before? It's before political correctness took effect in this society. Oh, do you think? I know. I know. (laughs) Yeah. The words that they say? Yeah. But here's the thing, though, too, with Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. Even back then, he would not have been allowed to hit or choke a recruit. Those sort of things are over the top and are for dramatic effect. The yelling and being in the face... Stripping away of your personality and giving you a new name, Private Joker or Cowboy or Snowball or Private Pile, that's part of the whole process of becoming a Marine. And it's pretty clear he tells them he's designed to turn them into a killing machine. He never minces words about what the intention is. And it's like you said, Eric, it starts with them shaving the head. Their identity is taken away. It's completely, completely, you you are no longer you, you are a Marine and you are a Marine before everything else. It's like he says, even as they graduate, you don't matter. And that's after they graduate, the Marines will live on after you. So therefore you live on after you. While it comes off harsh and it's very in your face, that's what it's designed to do. 
the your initial question, Ken, was how do you feel? I couldn't handle that. No, I couldn't either. I'll be honest. There's, that's why I didn't join the Marines. I had friends who did, and they're stronger than I am. I can say that. My personality does not lend itself to having that done to me because my instinct is immediately to fight back. So a question here for you then is, if you were drafted, because it looks like these guys probably were drafted because this is Not Vietnam. into the Marines. Not into Not the Marines. Marines. No, you're drafted okay. in the Army. You're drafted into the Army. You volunteer to the Marines. And the way I know that is because I had a cousin who volunteered and then died in Vietnam. And the reason he volunteered was because his draft number was too low and he was going to be drafted anyway. So based on that, if you were in the Marines and you were given a new name, what would your new name be? It doesn't have to be one from oh, the movie the itself. Movie. Just something that you think somebody would nickname you. And you could be harsh or nice. It doesn't matter. This is a podcast. Probably um, Private Four Eyes or something like that. It was only until recently that I had I wore glasses every day of my life. Any thoughts, Eric? Uh, boy, I, I don't know. I mean, I would align myself more with Joker, with the sarcasm. But if I had to give myself a name, yeah, like a private four eyes or, or something short. Since I'm only a little over five feet tall, let's be honest, it'd probably be a, a short joke. I would probably say that he would probably call me Private Stewart, Jimmy Stewart, because sometimes I stutter when I get really nervous. And I could see a, a sergeant coming up to me and trying to get me to say things. And I would probably be like, uh, 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 uh. Some kind of stuttering type of thing would probably be my nickname. We know about the shaving of the heads, and then we see the sergeant belittling the recruits, but we don't know anything about them. Why do you think that Stanley Kubrick decided to go in this direction? Why didn't he not give anybody really a backstory? Because they're all Marines now. They're all starting from day one. They're all completely just clay that is going to be molded into a killing machine by the Marines. Their backstories are almost irrelevant. You know, one's obviously from Texas, but you don't need to know their backstory. You really don't. The major players did have a past, but we know just what is enough to make them a character. And then we're reliant upon, in the next chapter, who they become as they've become a Marine. It's the stripping of their humanity. Like you said, Eric, it's completely irrelevant. Yeah. You are no longer you. You are now a Marine. And they all and keep their nicknames. They are known by their nicknames when they're going into exactly. battle. Yeah. And I found this interesting through my research. Well, we know two people's names. We know Private Pyle is Leonard Lawrence. Leonard Lawrence, yeah. But then Private Joker, his real name is J.T. Davis. And the reason that that is significant and the reason that that is really the only person we distinctly know their name is because James T. Davis was the first officially recognized casualty in Vietnam who was killed in 1961. So that's deliberate. He placed that name there in honor of that particular person. We don't even know hardly anything about any of the other recruits. But one of the things that Stanley did in shooting these with the recruits, he had a special lens made that kept everyone in focus because none of the recruits fall out of focus. And the reason for that was because they're all equally important at that point because they're being molded because no one person matters more than the other. It's as Gunnery Sergeant Hartman 
chooses people out, that's when we realize these people are going to be the people that are going to matter later on. But doesn't it matter that, you know, to have a little bit of backstory so we know who to care for? Because it's hard for, at least for me, to care for any of these characters almost because I don't know what their background is. We just talked about how in the Marines you're not drafted, that you volunteered to be here unless you knew you were going to go to the Army. And so you went to the Marines right away to avoid going to the Army. But here's the thing is, you know, you're going to go fight. What makes each one of these guys, or at least the main characters, want to go and kill? I mean, we hear from Joker saying the reason why he was there is to kill. And which is kind of interesting because he doesn't he kill. Seems to have, <laughs> well, we, we do know that he does kill at the end, at least. He wears the peace pin and he wears the hat, born to kill. And so there's this conflict in him. I mean, I would like to know a little bit more of Pyle's reason for being there. We could see he probably should have never gone there. Was he at that point where he had no other choices? Some type of backgrounds I would like to see to pay off later. And then we have Gunnery Sergeant, and he is always in their face. You know, you want to hate him because of how he's treating these people. We don't know any other side of him besides the way he treats each Marine. And so when he does die by Pyle's rifle, we don't know how we feel about that. We're, do we feel, yay, he killed him, you know, the psychotic killed the sergeant? Or do we feel bad for the sergeant? Do we not care about either one of them? Are we worried about now about Joker? Is he going to get killed next? I don't really have any investment in each character because there's not enough given to me to really invest into. Well, if you're going to go to where Gunny was killed, you're not supposed to feel one way or the other about him dying. It's all about leading up to why and how he's pushed this one person too far. And by breaking those people down, he broke one person too far. I think that's the more of the point that we're getting at. We're not supposed to feel vindication for him being killed. I mean, that's not the intention going into there. And here's the thing, too. A lot of this is based off of interpretation and how you feel about that particular person. I feel bad for Private Pyle, right up to the point he kills Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. See, the only time I feel bad for him, though, is when they're beating him with the soap tied around with the towel and they're beating him and he's in pain. All the other times, I'm not really feeling bad about him because he shouldn't be there. I'm hoping that he gets kicked out because he isn't able to do a pull-up. He isn't able to run. He isn't able to do anything. You know, everybody should be upset with him. Everybody should be frustrated with him because he hides jelly donuts when he knows he shouldn't be eating jelly donuts. There's nothing really to feel sorry about him about until he gets beat with those soaps. Well, they beat him with the soap before the jelly donut was found, right? No, after. it was after. It was after. Okay, so that was kind of like icing on the cake, if you will. It's after because that's when Hartman starts to punish the other the, yeah, the, the, recruits. the platoon for when he screws up. I do feel bad for him, though. And see, and this is part of the, the difference here, because I come at it and I see he's trying to conform and fit in, and it's not working. Maybe he shouldn't have joined the Marines, but it's irrelevant as to why he joined the Marines, because he's there, and they're not going to kick him out. At the time, they're ramping up 
for Vietnam. We're talking about, yeah, yeah, we're talking about 1967. A lot of these people don't have any other option, or they decided to join because, like I said, because they were going to get drafted anyway. Private Pyle, unless he goes to Canada, is going to be in a boot camp somewhere. These guys are going to end up there unless they have a draft number that's so high they're never going to get drafted. It's just that these guys chose the Marines. The Marines are a more elite fighting force, but they weren't going to turn somebody away just because they were a bigger guy as far as Private Pyle. He's in over his head. And no, you, you understand that. Every movie needs an antagonist. Every movie needs someone that is going to be that character that is going to get picked on, that's going to get the crap kicked out of them, be the sympathetic character. And obviously, Pyle is that person. Realistically, he probably would not have made it into boot camp based on his size but he did and he's that character that everyone is going to pick on you know from day one you know from his first conversation Hartman has with him you know he is going to be the person that is just going to get the crap beat out of him it's not only his size it's also his demeanor he comes off of being somebody very slow his mentality is definitely slower than the rest I would agree he's got a childlike mentality yes I wouldn't say that he was necessarily slow because he learns how to take apart an M14 and put it back together. It takes him a long time to figure that out because he even has to have private tutoring to have him do most of these acts. He has to have somebody specially work with him. Like you said, maybe because he has a childlike mind, it is a slow mind. It, It doesn't grasp things faster than others. And then he does silly things like keeping a jelly donut in his thing because, you know, he's supposed to lose weight. That just shows that he's a little bit also on the selfish side. And he has a hard time controlling his laughter when the sergeant is berating him and, and then ends up having to be choked because he isn't able to stop smiling. So there is something a little off with him. And that could also explain at the end why he snaps a little quicker because his mind is not maybe fully formatted to deal with this. The whole sequence with Private Pile 2 is to set up Joker's story. Whereas, like, Platoon is Chris's story. But Full Metal Jacket is about, essentially, what happens to Joker. And he's put into this position where he's seen horror before he goes to Vietnam, where he's going to see even worse. I mean, I understand what you're saying. I just, I disagree. Because then you're saying that the whole first section of the movie doesn't need to be there. It seems to me that this is two sections of the movie. You have the basic training that you're introduced to some of these characters, but not all of them. And really only two characters actually come out of this. You have Cowboy and Joker come out of this. And there's not enough about Cowboy during basic training for us to even to really relate to him when we're introduced to him again in the second half of the movie. So I actually think it does a poor job of setting us up for the Vietnam section of the movie. I know a little bit probably about Joker. I know a little bit. I know he's not a Christian because he doesn't believe in the Virgin Mary. Um, I know that he's a writer. But outside of those couple things, he says he signed up because he's a killer. I like to know more why he signed up into the Marines. That would have given me a little bit more background because sometimes I just don't know what to make of Joker because sometimes I feel like he's such a jerk. I don't think Kubrick wants you to think he's a jerk, but I think he wants you to kind of make your own assumption 
on a backstory. He doesn't want to set up a backstory for each character. He wants you to kind of make an assumption off them for Joker, for example. You're right, Joker and Cowboy are the only two that come from basic training into the second part of the movie. And you kind of make an assumption of them as they're in Vietnam, what they've graduated to. One is in a is in active combat. The other one is kind of isolated a little bit, bored, as told in, in conversation, you know, working for Stars and Stripes. And I think if you get a backstory on these guys, well, first off, it's going to be a much longer movie. We know that. Like a lot of Kubrick movies in the past, he wants to leave stuff open for you to make assumptions and to talk about it, kind of like we're doing right now. Yeah, but I would like to have seen maybe a little bit more interaction, let's say, with Cowboy and Joker, because they are brought back and had this special relationship. They joke a little bit in the beginning, but not enough for me to buy that they are friends going into this war. No, you're right. No, definitely. There is a lot that is left open between the death of Pyle and the active war scenes of the movie. There is, I don't know, what is it, a couple months, a year, maybe two? There is is obviously interaction between them post-graduation that we don't know anything about. You know, when they first meet uh, at the active combat, they talk about, you know, the mother and the sister and they joke like it's an inside joke between them, but we don't know anything about it. It leaves interpretation. That's a reference back to them when they were mopping the head. The floors, yeah, in the bathroom. It's established through that sequence that you know that these guys, they're not necessarily best friends. But seeing somebody that you knew in that situation is going to make you feel more attached to them than you normally would. Yeah, didn't he call him his brother from the island? Right. I mean, yeah, you are brainwashed from day one and you are given a new identity, these people are your quote-unquote family. Right. The thing is, too, you're going to be assigned to a new platoon later on. You're not going to go into Vietnam with the guys you went to boot camp with. It's a very transactional relationship in that way where these guys are going to come in in and out of your life. You may never see them again. But it just so happens because of the hellish situation that Joker's tossed into, he finds somebody that he can connect with and he considers a friend because they had the shared experience watching what happened with Private Pile. They have that experience that makes them a little bit closer in connection. But it's because they're experiencing something and to see a familiar face in amongst a whole group of strangers, you're going to immediately be more drawn to that person to make you feel more comfortable. Joker's trying to hold on to his humanity and every single step he's losing a piece of himself. While he conforms to life in the Marines on the island, he does just enough to survive. He doesn't completely ever lose his duality and then that leads to him having Born to Kill on his helmet and the peace button and he references that it's the yin and the yang. He is the two parts of the whole. And he has that struggle throughout the whole movie. And I don't know if this was intentional, but as you focus on him standing over the sniper who's been wounded and it's been left up to him to shoot her or leave her, his face is perfectly split, light and dark. So even at that moment, you can see the duality of the struggle that's within him. 
If you've talked to people who serve in Vietnam, this is what they had to battle personally was that inner struggle. You look at all of the other Vietnam movies, they're all about the jungle. And Kubrick takes this a different way, and he brings it into the city of Hue. Urban fighting. You have guys coming back and saying in articles that I read that fought in Fallujah in Iraq or in Afghanistan in Kabul. They relate to Full Metal Jacket more than any other movie because that city fighting. And that does something to your mind as well. That's completely different. And Kubrick even shot the movie different. The scenes and the sequences on Paris Island, they're bright. And the sun is generally shining. I know there's clouds and when they're talking about Charles Whitman and Lee Harvey Oswald. But everything is brighter. But the moment we get into Vietnam, it's completely different. It's darker. There's a grunginess to it that wasn't there on the island. There was no way anything that they could have done on Paris Island could never have prepared them for what they were going to go into when they were fighting in Hawaii. And that, I think, is one of the major things you have to take from this movie, is that there's a distinct difference between the two, and there was nothing. Gunnery Sergeant Hartman could never have prepared them. And seeing that's part of it, too, this was a different fighting. Not only was it urban fighting in some places, it was guerrilla warfare. In World War II, the Germans had one uniform and the Allies had the other uniform. Because if you even talk to World War II veterans, the veterans who fought in the Pacific against the Japanese had a completely different war experience than those guys who fought the Nazis in Europe. And there was different things that affected them. Guerrilla warfare, though, is another animal and beast all of its own. And that has to be taken into consideration here, too. And I think that's ultimately what comes out of the first part of the movie, is that as hard as Gunnery Sergeant Hartman was on them, it's all irrelevant the moment they set foot in country. Because there's not going to be any drilling or anything like that. They've had their humanity stripped, be turned into a killer. I know too much about the Vietnam War. I'll be perfectly honest. As real as Platoon was, this movie is more real than Platoon. In your opinion, yeah, that would probably be the case because of how much extensive knowledge you have on the Vietnam era. Whereas for me, Platoon is more in line. It's, it's more character centric, but that's not war. But that's the difference between a movie. You know, there's one thing about making a film and making a movie documentary and making a movie. Then let's talk about what is the theme of this movie. The theme of this movie is the lack and the stripping of humanity of what war does to a person. I don't know if these guys even had humanity to begin with. We don't know anything the about... Only, there's two people that probably didn't have humanity before this. That's the door gunner of the helicopter and animal mother. People are legitimate psychopaths. True, but I mean, you have other ones. You have 8-Ball. We don't know much about 8-Ball, and we really don't know much about any of these people. Coming at this from two different areas. Right. I understand that you want these characters, but when you're dealing with something like, I'm trying well, to figure out how to explain it. These people come in and out of your life so fast when you're in country. There is no deep relationship. These deep relationships don't exist until you come home and you've had that shared experience with somebody. You can connect with them. 
So for somebody who night and day for nine to 12 months straight, you're saying none of these people are getting relationships with each other. They're not going to realize these relationships until they come home. I think that's not true. I think they're developing relationships there and they're dependent on each other to survive. There is that care for each other. And in this movie, it just seems like to me when somebody dies, it's like, oh, somebody died. And I don't know if it's a marine mortality, but most of these characters are kill happy. They're focused, whereas I think in other movies that we've seen, maybe it's because we're watching maybe Army instead of Marines. They're more like, we don't want to be here. We want to go home. Can't wait to get home. Whereas in this movie, it just seems like... Marines are different. Yeah. All we kill about is killing, killing, killing. I'm, I'm disconnected with the characters because that I feel like the only reason why they're there is to kill and kill and kill again. But in the case of only a certain few, you do see the humanity from Joker. I This is where I, I disagree. When you're talking about being in country, when new people come into country, the life expectancy wasn't that long. I can't remember which movie it's talked about, but there's a reason why new recruits that came into Vietnam, they were told people wouldn't make friends with them because they knew that they were going to be dead soon. That's a harsh reality. The life expectancy for a new lieutenant coming into Vietnam at around 1968-69 was a little over two and a half weeks. And we kind of see that in the movie because every time somebody's promoted to the head, they're they're basically killed within the next five minutes of the film. I mean, for me, someone who is more character driven and I like to know more about the characters, this movie falls flat for me because there's nobody that I like in this movie whatsoever. And that includes Joker because there's even times and we talked about this. He gets promoted. He becomes a writer and he's sitting in his barracks going how bored he is and how he wants to go out into the field and basically be part of that. And everybody seems to sound like that. They don't want to be bored. They want to be out there killing. And and to me, it's just so That's, much. There's a certain amount of machismo. You're talking about the scene right before the Tet Offensive starts when they're in Da Nang and they're in, the, they're in the barracks. That is all machismo. Even the guy who is proclaiming that he was part of Operation Hastings, he wasn't even in country at that point. They're trapped behind the lines, essentially, by being the war correspondents for Stars and Stripes. They're trying to make their experience because they understand something. They know they're getting off light. They they know this because they're when they do go out into the jungle, they're seeing people get killed. And then they're coming back to this. There's a machismo that's going on here that they're trying to puff themselves up to each other to prove that they are having, I guess you could say, the quote-unquote war experience that they know that they're truly not having. I just think I want to see a balance of what you're just saying with not wanting to be out there, not wanting to kill. I want to see a better balance between the two, the struggle. We sometimes see it when he's looking over the dead, and you can see in his face that war is hell. But that's the only time it seems like he is having that inner struggle. And I would like to see not only him with that inner struggle, but more of the other characters having that inner struggle. Then it balances off the, the what, the cheesmo, whatever. Machismo, machismo. <laughs> Machismo. Machismo. Uh, can I have that with the side of salsa? Of course. Thank you. See, I know what you're saying, but at the same time, when we watch a movie, we are watching a movie also to be entertained. And I feel like this is coming off as being very documentary-like, which is fine. But when it's a feature film, and I'm sitting down, and I go to the movie theater to watch this film, this is not a movie I'm watching to invest in characters. I'm not 
laughing or crying or anything with these people because that's not what this movie is intending to do. In doing research for the movie, the fact of the matter was is Kubrick was originally going to kill Joker. Joker was going to die. Matthew Modine posed this to Stanley Kubrick, and it ended up changing the end of the movie. Matthew Modine has said to Stanley Kubrick that, that Joker should live. And when asked why he should live, Joker said he's always drill instructor killed in basic training. The recruit he tried to help blow his brains out. The only man he knew from basic training die in his arms and a teenage female sniper killed by his own hand. Joker had to live because living with those experiences were worse than dying. And that's the real horror of war. And that's the end of the movie. When he says at the end of the movie, I live in a world of shit, that's what he's talking about. Joker will never be the same person. If you've talked to anybody who's fought in Vietnam, they were never the same person after they came back. I get that, but do I care? I don't care if they're the same person or not because I don't know them personally. I have no clue who they are. I mean, it's hard to relate with you and now how war has changed you when I didn't know what you were before it changed you. I mean, just to blankly say that it changed you, I get it. And I understand war does that. I don't want that to happen to anybody. What happens to Joker at the end? What kind of change is happening here? He shoots the girl at the end. Does it change him? Does that actually change him? Or has he already been changed before then to being that different person? Was it's the it the final in? straw. Is it the final straw or did it happen earlier? Did it happen in basic training when Pyle killed himself? You could say the same thing for Pyle. When did Pyle switch? Was it when he got beat with all the soaps? Yeah. That's when we see it in the movie. But he kills the sergeant. He doesn't kill Joker, who's the last person to take the soap and beat the crap out of him. And then after that, the sergeant is actually being very good to him. He talks to him about how well he shoots the gun. He tells him how well of a soldier is when he presents his gun to him. And, you know, he does everything perfectly. The sergeant is now telling him, you're part of the Marines now. You have done it. And to me, the person that he should probably be shooting is Joker. Because Joker is that friend, and then at the end turned on him and beat him with the soap. Why didn't he kill both? Was it the release of killing the sergeant, and once he killed the sergeant, that released him, and then he realized, holy crap, look what I've done. Time to put a gun in my head and end it. Eric, I haven't heard from you in a while. Let's let's talk to Eric. I've watched the movie. It's a Vietnam movie. I like the movie. I can talk about some of the characters and the plots and the watched on documentaries, but I don't go nearly as deep as Ted. This is Ted's uh, wheelhouse. As a rebut to what you were saying about Private Pyle, what you're trying to do there is you're trying to get into the mind of a spree killer. It shouldn't be lost on anybody that Hartman brings up Charles Whitman. And then look at what happens to Private Pyle. He looked at Charles Whitman and he looked at, um, at Harvey Oswald as, as heroes or as people who should be learned as that's the type of killer. Right. Gunnery Hartman was the focus of Private Pyle's rage. I think given the opportunity, he was planning on shooting as many people as he could, just as what Charles Whitman did. That's a whole nother psychology. It makes perfect sense that that's what he was going to say. And it's at that point where I lost any sympathy for Private Pile. I mean, you can he gets the Kubrick stare. And the moment you know he's had the psychotic break is Kubrick has the stare that occurs in almost every movie. And Vincent D'Onofrio does it probably. The only person who does it better is probably Jack Nicholson. But when I think of the Kubrick stare, I think of Private Pile. 
and Pyle does it a few times. He does it on the bench. He does it when he's sitting down, when he's giving out assignments. And then we look at it at the end there. But what I'm saying here is I would have probably liked a transition from the killing and then going into Vietnam. There's no transition. It basically ends right there. And now they're in Vietnam. We don't know how Joker handled all this. We don't know how everything transpired. I probably would have loved to have seen a little bit more of a Joker struggle with what just happened because Joker played a big part of him losing it and basically killing the sergeant. Like the Marines, it doesn't matter. It matters to me because it's a movie. It maybe doesn't matter in the Marines, and it doesn't matter in real life, but in a movie, to me, it matters. This is one of the major arguments about the movie, even more so than we don't have a backstory on the characters. The argument of this movie is that it's two movies. The first part, when they're in at Paris Island, and then there's Vietnam. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be that way. Because there was nothing that was going to happen in the first part of the movie that was going to prepare any of these characters for what they were going to encounter in Vietnam. The fact of the matter is Private Joker, and we're, this is not set in 2018, where, where we're in a completely different lens. You have to look at this through the eyes of what would have happened then. What would have happened then is these guys would not have went for psychological testing after they just watched somebody commit suicide. They would have been told to get on the airplane and get your ass over to Vietnam. Kubrick is trying to show here they're machines designed to kill. It just so happens we get to see a little bit more of Joker than we get to see of anybody else. And we get to see how he tries to hold on to his humanity, but at the end, it's stripped away from him for the final time when we have to assume he probably shoots her in the face. You hear the one other guy say, that's hardcore, man. Well, remember, in the film had a different ending, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That we did, didn't haven't even discussed the right. fact that Animal Mother was supposed to cut her head off with a machete, machete, and then they used it as a soccer ball. Right. And that's hardcore. Some of these guys probably lost their humanity way before the end of this movie. And with Joker, you know, in between the Vietnam and basic training scenes, maybe I would have liked to seen him on a plane or a boat or whatever he takes to get to where he needs to go to and him maybe rustling in his mind, maybe just a facial expression. But what we see next is him and a prostitute arguing over about how much money uh, to love him a long time. And I think that's the difference between a movie and maybe a film. So this is probably more film documentary style than it is an actual, hey, let's go out to the movies and eat some popcorn and enjoy a flick. This is not that kind of movie. No, it's not. And you talk about the documentary style and you actually get to see the guys are filming them. And that's part of what made the Vietnam War so real for the people at home was they got to see people dying on the news every night. And the one guy even mentions it's Vietnam, the movie. It's all surreal. No, this is not. I'm going to take my girlfriend to the movies and this is going to be a fun, happy time. But if you're going to see a movie, I can name five movies right off the top of my head about Vietnam. If you're going into those movies thinking you're going to sit there and you're going to be having a fun time at the movie, eating your popcorn, and you're not going to feel something coming out of it, I'm sorry, you're wrong. Do you want to go to the Deer Hunter, Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July, Full Metal Jacket, Apocalypse Now, 
was different, though, because that's the retelling of a Joseph Conrad book, The Heart of Darkness. It's set in Vietnam. These other movies tackle the actual real-life repercussions of Vietnam, whereas Apocalypse Now is more of a book story-style movie. We haven't discussed this at length before. I'm assuming you probably like Apocalypse Now more than Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, technically, but it's been years since I, I watched In fact, Eric's going to lend me the copy to rewatch it again. But I will say this. All those movies that you just named, when I finished watching that movie, I would say, wow, that's that's a good movie. And when I watch this, I'm not sure what I'm thinking. I mean, because there are characters, I think, in like, let's say, Platoon, I'm invested in. Look at someone like William Defoe's character in Platoon, and when he gets killed, that bothers me. I'm sad. I don't want to see him killed, even though there's not a lot of background on him, but I get enough of him and his personality, and I feel like I appreciate him. These other characters I cannot connect to in any type of sense because I feel like they're one-sided. If I can get a second side of a character, then maybe, just maybe, I feel a little differently about this movie. But I'm only seeing the one side, except for maybe Joker. I don't know. When I come at this in Platoon, I look, it's almost two different movies. They're looking at two different aspects of the experience. Because in my opinion, and I'm sure you're going to differ with this opinion, at the end of each of those two movies, Joker is more of a broke human being than Chris is at the end of Platoon. I don't think Joker's ever going to be the same person ever again, whereas I think Chris will be able to recover from whatever happened to him in Platoon. And They're coming in into, into different mindsets. Let's not forget that Joker is coming in there, and they want to be in here. They want to be killers. Where I think people, like in Platoon, it's different because I think it's a different branch. I think it's the army in Platoon, and you can correct me if I'm wrong there. It is. They have maybe a different mentality. In Platoon, we have people that don't want to be there and are waiting to get out. They're basically always talking about how it sucks to be there and everything like that. Whereas in this movie, they talk about how ungrateful the people are there. So they're mad as heck. I mean, we see the guy that's sitting in the airplane and he's shooting all the, the people on the ground. And He's he the most disturbing character in the movie. Yes, very disturbing character and indeed because he's like, if they're running, they're, they're guilty. And if they're, if they're not right. running, they're... Indiscriminate murder. I think you're underestimating either Matthew Modine's portrayal of Joker or the character of Joker himself. Because you say that he wants to be a killer and he came in and he wanted to show me your war face. When I come and look at Joker, I look at it like this. He is a complex enough person to be able to hold back enough of his humanity that he can tell Hartman what Hartman wants to hear so he can have still a part of him that's himself. He is able to compartmentalize himself that way, whereas Pyle can't. But he's able to hold that part of him back. And it's not until the end of the movie where he can't compartmentalize it anymore. But you're right. All of these guys are sitting there saying about how the generals above them not making the correct decisions. Like you hear Animal Mother, what do you think about Vietnam? And you say, I think we should win. If you talked to a grunt out in country in Vietnam, that's what they would have told you. So all of those things are real. And when they talk about the South Vietnamese troops that were fighting alongside, that criticism is real too. And you don't want me to get into the history of it, but I can tell you that it's true. 
And I understand that that's how these guys felt. My problem has been that there's only one side of how they felt portrayed throughout the whole movie. Joker shows a little bit more, but in general, it's all one-sided. We don't get to see the conflict in any character except for, I think, Joker, to be perfectly honest with you. Even though I'm a big fan of the cowboy character, especially when he becomes a leader, I tend to see the struggle a little bit in him with leading the people that he just inherited. So there's part of me that sees his struggle dealing with people who have never been led by him before. And there seems to be a conflict, like people don't think he's up to the case or whatever. But most of the times in this movie, I feel like most of these characters are one-sided and you like the one side that you're seeing here. You like the realism of it and you're enjoying that, but I'm not because I want to see the conflict. I want to see more conflict. The more the conflict, maybe the better for me in a movie. You brought up one of the only parts of, of the movie that isn't real. You even see it in Platoon where they disobey and go and do what they want to do relatively confident in saying that something like that wouldn't have happened. But what you're talking about, the complaints of between the two movies, you're looking at the complaint between a Marine and somebody who was in the army. They're different because the guys who were volunteered were a completely different mindset than those guys who were drafted. They didn't want to be there. Let's not forget the Charlie Sheen character in Platoon wasn't drafted. He volunteered too. But he has a different experience. But if you listen to everybody around him, they were all drafted. And it's Keith David's character makes fun of Chris, who's played by Charlie Sheen. He makes fun of him for volunteering. Right. So they're different mindset. That could also be where maybe your mind goes. I mean, maybe if I'm more in line with how an army person maybe thinks compared to maybe a marine person thinks. Like I said, we can go back and forth on this for the whole podcast. And some people probably agree with you because they like what they're seeing here. And this movie has been getting relatively really good reviews. But there are some people that don't connect. And Roger Ebert was one of those people that did not connect with this movie. I think people that actually saw real combat connect with this movie. True. My cousin died in Vietnam. In college, I had to learn about this. We interviewed people who fought in Vietnam. One of my dad's friends, he was part of their cavalry. He flew a Huey helicopter, and he was never the same when he came back. I mean, I could sit and tell you stories, what he told my dad. He saw, being part of the Air Cav, that these guys are, are not going to come back. So I've been exposed to that part. I could sit here and tell you what it did to that part of my mom's family after my cousin was killed. Of course, I wasn't alive, but my mom was. My mom, if she wasn't ill, she wouldn't even listen to this podcast about this. She won't even watch anything having to do with the Vietnam War because it's too painful for her. Now she's got dementia, but she still can't handle any of this. I come at it from a place where I know I have a person that's on that wall. And it just so happens that he was around the same area that these guys are fighting. He was killed around not too far from Da Nang. That's where I come from at this, but that's not what you really want out of this. I've had to encounter this. I mean, it's been part of my life. You want to talk about who exposed you to a movie. My dad exposed me to Platoon into Full Metal Jacket when I was growing up. But I watched Platoon when I was like 11. It was edited for TV. So I've always had this as part of me. I can see the distinctions between the two movies. You have this unique perspective, and I think that's why this movie brings you in. And I don't have the same background that you have. And 
that's why I'm not as engaged into this movie as you are. And war movies for me are not important. There are some exceptions. I really do like Platoon. Platoon is probably my favorite war movie of all time. There are some other ones which I like, but I just don't get heavily invested in. I'm a lover, not a fighter, I guess. So let's talk about the dialogue in this movie. So some of this dialogue, there is a lot of mention to things, of course, that are not politically correct anymore that are kind of hard to probably deal with. But on top of that, how do you feel about the dialogue, let's say, in general of this movie, let's say compared to Dr. Strangelove or compared to 2001 A Space Odyssey or any other Stanley Kubrick movie that you have seen? What are the differences? What do you like? What do you not like about the dialogue in this movie? This movie would clearly suck without the language that was used in the first half on Paris Island. You need the language to be realistic. You need the movie to be realistic if you're talking about a a Marine-style training camp in the Vietnam era. I mean, you have to have the language. If this was weak language, it wouldn't even be worth a movie. I agree. This isn't for the faint of heart. You can't go into this movie with the language and be willing to clutch your pearls and get all stuffy about the whole thing. You need to stay as far away from this movie as you possibly can. You're going to hear things that are going to offend you. Here again, that's part of what Hartman's trying to do. He's trying to see if he, he'll get a rise out of you. Like when he tells the black guy that they're not going to have fried fried chicken. In, the, in the mess hall. He's trying to see if you're going to fight back or if you're going to be able to be molded. But it also happens later on when you have Animal talking to uh, Apol. Right. When he takes the prostitute and he says an insensitive thing about why he should go first before a black person. But he says it in a way that's really mean and insensitive. And that's not the only time that he's kind of like that. That's the era. But watching it now, sometimes it's a little bit hard. I agree. Now, we had this discussion before with other movies. Could this movie be made now? We've talked about that in other movies, which have language that is kind of risque, too. Could this movie be made now with the language that is in the movie, and why or why not? It'd be tough. I honestly don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, Tarantino flicks are, have some pretty bad language in them. Let's be honest. True. And they use racial epithets. Yeah, yeah so yes, I mean, like, uh, what is it, The Hateful Eight? Yep. Yeah, that's a very recent movie. So yes, I think this movie could be made today. Django Unchained. Django yeah. Unchained, absolutely. Yeah. Got in big, he got in big trouble for that movie. But yet it was but, made. It, but it was made. It probably could, under the guise of this is what it's going to be. Would it cause people to clutch their pearls and bring out their fainting chairs and, and everything? Probably. But come on, I mean, you know what you get when you get a Tarantino flick. There's no surprise, eh, let's be honest. They were still getting out their fainting chairs oh, and, true. when that movie came out. You're always going to have that element. And this movie is telling a story. That's part of these guys' story. I don't know how you can't. I don't know if this is where you're going, Ken, but if you want to talk about how they refer to the Vietnamese, the racial epithets that they use that. Yeah, it's the same thing. So I'm going to say it. When you watch a World War II movie, they call the Nazis Krauts, or they use a similar epithet for the Japanese. For the Japanese. Yeah. And even if you go back to the Civil War, it's Johnny Reb and, oh, he's a Yank, Billy Yank. That's war. It's similar it in it's similar because... in the, the current war that we had in, in Iraq and Iran. Exactly. Yeah. It, Dehumanized it, it, the enemy. Bingo. It's a psychological thing that you have to do to be able to murder somebody else and not have it think in your mind that it's murder. You refer to them as something that's not human. 
Well, if you look at it, any speaking roles for the Vietnamese people were the prostitutes or the... The Arvin officer. So, I mean, really, they're portrayed very lowly in this particular movie. And the way they are portrayed is very stereotyped as far as a Vietnamese hooker. Misaki Saki, you long time. That's not a stereotype. That's a fact. Well, a lot of prostitution. Well, a lot of prostitution, but do they actually, would they, are they actually talking like that? Sure. In particular they don't, movie? that's the only English oh, yeah. they know. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, now it, to us, it's kind of weird to hear that, but I think back in the 80s, and I think we alluded to this before the podcast, it became like some of mainstream like music. Think about yeah. this, guys. This <laughs> movie was only made 12 years after the end of the Vietnam War. Right. Very recent in the minds of people. And we were still very much struggling with that as a nation. Born on the Fourth um, of July comes to mind. Oh God, yeah. Yeah. That. How would this movie be any different if it was made when it was intended to be made? Stanley Kubrick really wanted to make this in the seventies, but because of Apocalypse Now, he decided it wasn't the right time to make it. So I'm wondering if we see a different movie in the seventies than we do here in the eighties. Maybe that's a distinct possibility. Different actors, because... obviously. You wouldn't have a Matthew Modine, clearly. Right. It would have been handled differently because we were at a different point in time. You could make the argument that it's still a raw nerve, but right when Apocalypse Now happened, everything was still raw. I mean, the last copter out of Saigon was only like four years prior to Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now is a tough movie because it's really a novel come to life rather than the story of the Vietnam War. And that has to be a huge distinction for that particular movie. Even The Deer Hunter was another movie that came out right around the time of Apocalypse Now. That doesn't really handle the war aspect of the movie. It was more of about what happens when they came home. But it's not until we get to Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, Born on the Fourth of July, that we really start to tackle the real hard issues that came out of the Vietnam War. And that's the actual combat. In the 80s was a big time for the Vietnam War. You don't get Vietnam War movies anymore. I mean, the movies that are made now are going back to World War One and World War Two. 1917 comes to mind right off the bat, which is a beautifully shot movie. And Dunkirk. Yeah, so now we've gone away from the Vietnam movies, I think probably because of the nerve that we had in the 80s and the need to address what just happened. So a lot of people were jumping onto these movies. And like you said, the earlier movies seem to touch not with the war aspect of it, but more maybe of the movie aspect of it, like the character aspect. I would argue now, honestly, Ken, that I think directors and actors, for lack of a better word, trying to forget the Vietnam era and shy away to an era where it wasn't as controversial. World War One, World War Two, not controversial at all. Even the recent uh, Desert Storm, Iran, Iraq, really controversial, yes, because it's still kind of new. I mean, it's only a few years out. Uh, Desert Storm, and I know we have the current conflict going now, but with all of the technology it's in play now with all the social media it's in play now you have a lot more people that give opinions versus the vietnam era the opinions were more on the younger side they were on the the people that were actually not in the war that were protesting the war and i think like you said the 80s was the heyday for the vietnam flicks and now they've kind of shied away from I also think they were beating a dead horse in the 80s with the Vietnam War. There was every year we're getting Vietnam War movies, and if they were not war movies directly, there were things like First Blood. 
and it's ironic you bring up First Blood because one of the things that I learned about this particular movie, Kubrick saw First Blood, Rambo, and thought that it glorified what the whole thing was. That was his point, was to make a real movie. And I think he did. But you hit the nail on the head. When you have something like Rambo, who is this anti-hero, it glorifies the horror. I have a big problem with that, and I'm in agreement with Stanley Kubrick on this. And not just because he's my favorite director. I've always come away from Rambo feeling uneasy. We shouldn't be rooting for him. No, maybe not necessarily rooting for him, but like you said, the glorifying, taking the Superman from Vietnam and putting him into his own movie to take on the injustices of how America feels about the war. That movie starts off with everybody that he knows being dead and him being kind of like a lone survivor of his platoon. But that was what the 80s were. The 80s were either giving you realistic views of the Vietnam War or they were giving you these fantasy movies. Of, Chuck Norris movies. Chuck, I was yeah, just thinking yeah. of that too. Chuck yeah. Norris. And that is, goes on to other war movies of that particular area. You know, you have the Arthur Schwarzenegger, Commando, and even though they may not be related to Vietnam, they are grouped in together because that's the war we just left that are not set in an actual war time. And they're going to look at Vietnam because that was the last war that we were basically in. There has been one last movie of the recent vintage that did tackle Vietnam that was really good. And that was Rescued On with uh, Christian Bale. That movie was about POWs. That was a very good movie. It's one of a very few that I can remember of recent vintage that has tackled the Vietnam War era. Back to the question about the dialogue. So we said some of this dialogue is a little controversial. But how do you feel it compares to, let's say, other Stanley Kubrick movies? So see, for me, I think it's completely different than all the other movies because there is that shock in the dialogue that we talked about Quentin Tarantino. When we go to a Quentin Tarantino movie, we expect that kind of dialogue. But I would say in the Stanley Kubrick movie, we're not expecting this type of dialogue to come out. Is this dialogue that we're hearing, do you enjoy the dialogue in general? Not saying the things that make you uneasy, but the dialogue in general. Do you like this dialogue compared to, let's say, Dr. Strangelove? I can't compare them. They're two completely different movies. A 1960s nuclear holocaust movie, you're not going to have people talking like this. It's totally different language. It's uniquely war. Yeah. But in the same aspect, I think what you might be asking too, Ken, it's technically correct. There's a lot of technical jargon that's used, just kind of like what he did with some of the technical stuff in 2001. That's all real. So in a sense, it is the same. It's technically correct. In that same vein, it still has that level of authenticity that the other movies that you're talking about have. I think what I'm trying to look at here is it has that same bite. So like Dr. Strangelove, when you hear the dialogue, it has that same type of like it pulls you in, as I think so does this movie. Compared to, let's say, we, we also reviewed 2001 and we also reviewed The Shining. I don't think the dialogue is as good in those two movies. But this dialogue, let's say, compared to Dr. Strangelove, is what reels me into the movie. If there is something that reels me into it, it's the dialogue. Like you said, the realism the authentic 
language of the time. And I think that does draw me in. And that's one thing I appreciate of this movie is the use of dialogue. And not just the way they use like swear words and jargon and stuff like that. When they do have the interaction with others, it is kind of interesting. You have the interaction where Joker meets Animal for the first time and they go back and forth. You know, that scene right there, and we didn't talk about that scene, but that scene right there where they see Cowboy for the first time since basic training, I enjoy that scene. There's a lot of interaction with everybody else there. And they even take a picture of that one, I'm not sure the name of the character, he's sitting with one of the dead Vietnamese and basically pretend that they're celebrating his birthday. That scene actually reeled me in a little bit. And I wish that it extended out throughout the rest of the movie, but it did not. But I really did enjoy that scene. I agree. And we've only kind of touched on Vincent D'Onofrio, his portrayal of Private Pile. You talk about a tour de force type of performance. It's hard to say who was a bigger force in the movie. Was it Arlie Ermey or was it Vincent D'Onofrio? They stole a movie and they were only in half of the movie. And they had to share that half of the movie to begin with. With yeah. Matthew Wayne, so they pulled off amazing performances. If you're talking about favorite scenes, my favorite scene is in the bathroom in the head where Joker confronts Private Pile. It's so unsettling. I do like that particular scene, and it's because it's so well done. The suicide scene, right? Yeah, it's a great lead into the second part of the movie. What I think is really cool about that scene is him. Hate to say, it, blowing the back of his head, and you see all the blood and the and the brain matter. Head. Yeah, all the matter that's on the pretty back realistic. Of the wall. Very realistic. When I first saw that, that made me like squirm. It looked so realistic that I was like, "Ooh!" It did bring chills, and it made me not want to watch the rest of the movie because I was afraid it's going to see more of that. And granted, when I first saw this, I'm 15 years old. I'm not the age that I am now. What would you say, Eric, is your favorite scene in the movie? Would it be this, or would it be something else? My favorite scene in the movie, definitely the head scene is definitely one of my favorite scenes. I actually like the scene when the character is tied down by the sniper getting shot and they can't get to him. Eight ball? Oh, yeah. Eight ball. When eight ball goes out and he's tied down by the sniper and the sniper is just shooting him just in very non-key areas to keep him in pain, to keep him down, to let everyone know that that person is there and they are taking shots and you can't get them and how they're all kind of arguing amongst themselves on what the next move is. I thought that was a very realistic scene of a Vietnam era movie. It's very interesting that turns out to be a little girl. Yes. I believe I believe she's supposed to be 14 12, years old. 12, 12. 12 years old. You don't anticipate so she, that. So she's supposed to be 12 years old, but she has the sniper she expertise. Was, she was literally born to kill. I mean, taught from probably right. five, six, seven years old how to use a gun, a rifle, and that was her job. She was literally born to die, born to kill as a suicide and mission. You, and you even see how her smarts are when he's getting ready to tell Animal where the sniper is. She kills him. He's like, mm-hmm. that's it. We're done with you. And it's amazing when you do see the sniper being 12 years old, because in your wildest dreams, did you not think a 12-year-old girl or a 12-year-old boy or anybody of that particular age have the know-how to end that person's life right there when they were going to give them up? The Viet Cong frequently used children as an ambush. Yeah, they did. And it wasn't to the level of like the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, but you're exactly right, because we had argued about the whole born to kill All of those Marines that were there came face to face with somebody who was born to kill. And it's unsettling for them. 
This has been a very interesting movie. There's so much that we could hit upon. We talked about every time there's a leader, he gets killed. We get the booby trap of the bunny. And I knew that he was going to die. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was, that was, you knew, oh, there is a stuffed animal in the middle of a war field. Don't touch it. It's so realistic yeah. in that way. And there was a TV show, I believe it was called Tour of Duty, that was a short-lived TV show. I remember it because I was young enough that I was very into that sort of thing. The constant criticism and that I've read now about the show then was you couldn't have a weekly TV show about guys fighting in Vietnam. Like I had said before, the life expectancy for people was not good. You would have to be killing off major characters all the time. And now that's become commonplace in shows like Game of Thrones or The Walking Dead. But what you mentioned there, Ken, about a new leader gets killed. That's about as accurate as you can get. And the booby traps. And they didn't even get into how malicious those things really were. Right. One of the things, though, I had a problem was when Cowboy got killed. The only issues that I have with the movie as far as the realism is didn't anybody check behind them to see that there was this open he, area that they all could get shot at? It seemed to me... Well, when you're, I, I mean, the you're, only, you panic. Right. The, the only defense that I have for that is, like Eric said, it's panic. He's trying to get word to... Somebody should have saw it. Not just him. I understand him being panicked, but his whole platoon being panicked. It seems out of character for what they've done up to this point. Because it seems like everything else they do seems to be well-trained, very knowledgeable. Except for when they try to go out and save 8-Ball, they basically should know that there's no way they save him. That they're basically dead on arrival. Right. The end part kind of throws me off a little bit because they're really good at what they do to all of a sudden not knowing what to do. And that's also the chaos of battle. But I agree because it's funny that you brought up Cowboy getting shot there. It's one of those things that I don't always do it anymore. But when I first saw the movie for the first few times, it was like you want to shout to that character, check your surroundings <laughs> before you start. Right, because you could see it, but they can't see it. And then right. that's why I think that's why it's bothersome is because if it was something that just came out of nowhere, then that would have been awesome. Like if we didn't see it coming, that would have been great. But we saw it coming from a mile away. You get a POV shot mm -hmm. of from her directly through. Because um, you know where she's at and you know where she's aiming at. And she's been very accurate up to this point. So the Cowboy was not the real leader of the group. He was promoted via death of other people. He was the radio guy. His main focus was getting on the radio and trying to get cover or some type of help or information to people that could help. He really wasn't well, thinking. He knew what to do, though. I mean, out of all the leaders that we get to see in the movie, because we don't get to see him very long, it seems like to me that Cowboy knows what to do. He seems very, very able and very smart. He doesn't think with his emotions. He thinks with his head. He tries to convince Animal and others not to go out there. In fact, he tells them that they should leave them behind. Because to be honest, that is the smart move. So I think he shows that he's very capable well, and can lead. I think they don't listen to him because, well, they're losing people that they maybe care about. It takes over their emotions. And, and he, them being he, killers, they want to get revenge right now. And he so. made one mistake. Yeah, I agree. It's a tough thing. The one mistake is the, the thing that gets you. Well, on that note, we're coming to an end to the movie. I know that we're like, wait a second, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about that. Well, unfortunately, we've gotten to that time where we need to wrap things up. On that note, what are your final thoughts and your grade for Full Metal Jacket? 
Eric? Well, for me, as we know in my prior reviews, I am a, a very big cinematography nut, and I think the cinematography on this thing is top tier. Uh, I would divide this movie into two parts, training at uh, Paris Island and then Vietnam. I like the Paris Island. I love that part of the movie more than the actual war part of the movie, but it's still very, very close. This is one of my favorite Kubrick movies. I'll be honest, I like them all. I mean, every Kubrick film really has that kind of look and feel that you watch it and you're like, oh yeah, this is my favorite Kubrick movie. And then you watch another one again, you're like, oh no, no, this one is. That's just a mark of a great director that every time you watch his movie, you're really debating with yourself of like, this is such an incredible movie. This is my favorite one. Definitely a great movie. I think the acting is good. I think the cinematography is good. The use of music, again, a Kubrick standard. The use of music is great in this movie. There's really not too much I find wrong with it. Unlike Ken, the backstory really isn't that important to me. I think if we had more backstory, this movie's probably pushing three hours. I think the length on it, which I think is about an hour and a half, I think overall the length is good. Everything in the movie is great. Some of the war scenes kind of dragged a little bit. Some of the acting kind of dragged a little bit for me in the war scene. So for that, I am giving the overall movie rating on this a B plus. Thank you, Eric. Okay, Ted, what is your final grade on Full Metal Jacket? This is one of my favorite war movies in general because it's different. It tackles a subject that I'm passionate about that leaves me in a different place. It's a combination of Hartman and Pyle and Joker that lead me to why this is one of my favorite movies. The performances for those particular characters are so phenomenal that it's hard to distance myself from it. It's a movie that I find I'm very comfortable with, even though there's a lot of very uncomfortable parts of the movie. Whenever I watch it, I never feel bad about watching it. I always come away satisfied as a moviegoer, and I think that's a huge thing. The movie for me is an A because it's moving in so many ways. So, Ted, why is it not an A+, plus? just out of curiosity? Or is it hard for you to give an A+. Plus? Did you Have you given an it's A+, plus a, before? I think I've given a couple. Okay. As far as an A+, plus, I don't know. Probably because the two separate sections are so disparate for me even though I defended it as good as I possibly could, there is a difference in the feelings of the two sections, even though I know why. So that leaves me a little bit off. There are parts of the Vietnam scenes that I don't really care for. It kind of drags. There's some stuff that didn't really need to be there, but that's quibbling for me at this point because it is a Kubrick movie and I'm sitting down to an, to enjoy it. I will be honest, this is a movie that was talked about when I was in school as far as in college. I would say that the two separate sections being so different is probably what keeps it from an A+. Cool. Okay. What do you think, Ken? Well, this movie is, if I were to say how I'm going to grade it, it's kind of a reverse 2001. There's two halves of this movie. There is the basic training. There is the Vietnam War. I prefer the basic training over the Vietnam War. I think the difference between this movie and, let's say, 2001, for me, with 2001, when I first saw it, I didn't particularly care for it. And as I've watched it over and over again, in fact, I watched a little bit of it last night, I start to like it a little bit more and a little bit more. Whereas with Full Metal Jacket, I liked it the first time I saw it. And 
since I first saw it, I've liked it less and less and less. When we have our discussions, I want to up up the grade to something higher than what I previously had. This is not the case. This is one of those movies where the more I think of it, the lower the grade I want to give it. I enjoy the performances. I think all the actors are very capable here. We didn't really touch a lot on Matthew Modine's acting capabilities here, but I think he does a good job with the character that he's given. I just feel like it's not complex enough. I would have liked to see my lead character have more complexity. The second half of the movie suffers from the same issue. The great thing about the other Stanley Kubrick movies is there's a lot of things for us to talk about as far as what does this mean? And I think we got spoiled by 2001 and The Shining and Dr. Strangelove. And I love those discussions that we had. And then we get to this movie and I just don't feel the same way about the discussions. I still prefer other Vietnam movies over this movie. And not saying this is a bad movie. I am sounding like I'm just nailing away on it. To be honest with you, to me, this movie is a C+. The first half of the movie, I think the fact that we see such dynamic characters as the sergeant, as we're seeing here with Private Pyle and their relationship, we're uncomfortable, but it's almost kind of a good uncomfortable. I don't know how to explain it. We're sitting in just waiting to see what happens next to Pyle. And once that's over with Pyle, I feel like I'm not waiting to see what happens to anybody else in the rest of the movie. I just don't think Private Joker is set up in a way where I wonder what's going to happen to Private Joker at the end. He kind of almost blends too much into the rest of the characters. Isn't set apart. As we see like in The Shining with Jack, he's kind of set apart. So that's where I stand with Full Metal Jacket, C+. But it's been a really fun ride doing the Stanley Kubrick. I came into this not being a huge fan, but actually appreciating Stanley Kubrick more for doing this. If anything is taken out of doing this podcast, it's an appreciation for Stanley Kubrick. I really appreciate Stanley Kubrick a lot more than I did prior to reviewing these movies. I felt that I watched these movies kind of just on face value, but the more I looked into them, the more I watched documentaries, the more I really watched these movies over and over and over again and discovered new things that I did not see the first time or the second time I watched them. I appreciate Stanley Kubrick as a great director that can pick out characters and pick out actors to really play the parts that he wants. And I like how everyone who's in a Stanley Kubrick film is always says that, you know what, we're doing this scene 10, 20, 30, 40 times. We are doing it until it is right in Stanley Kubrick's eyes. And I think he makes better actors out of people. I think also the great thing about this movie, and we didn't talk about the end of this movie, but Stanley Kubrick asked for more participation. We did talk a little bit about Matthew Odin's mentioning they didn't want his character to die. But the whole last part of the movie, he allowed the actors to decide where to go with it. I think says a lot about how he does trust his actors and gets his actors input. And Ted, this is your boy. This is your guy. Why don't you finish us off with uh, your last thoughts on Stanley Kubrick? I'm excited and happy that both of you guys have come to the Kubrick party, so to say. He's a Mount Rushmore director for me, and he, even possibly even above that. He literally, he changed how I look at movies. From the moment that I first saw one of his movies, I knew everything was going to be different. Do you and remember I knew... the first Stanley Kubrick film you saw? I knew you were going to ask that. Sure. 
Actually, it was probably The Shining. From there, Strange Love, and of course, 2001. But then, like, The Clockwork Orange and Paths of Glory. I've come to those, and it's like, I can see where the greatness is. There's something about the movies that always call to me. And they always are there, present in my mind, even when I watch newer movies. My liking him dictates how I like newer movies and newer directors. It's why I like a Christopher Nolan. It's why I like Quentin Tarantino. And that's just two. Because I look through the prism through these movies. Because at the end of the day, Stanley set out to make the best possible movie he could. And he did every single time, in my opinion. And they're generally the best movies of that genre. And because he was able to go across many genres and tackle really, really deep subjects, we didn't even get to discuss Clockwork Orange. Lolita. Or or Lolita. Spartacus, yeah. Or I hope we will in the future. He tackles things that a lot of people shy away from, and he's not afraid of it. And it's that courage to go after it, and the courage to stand by your convictions like he did, no matter what was put up in front. He always got what he wanted as far as his movie, and I think that that is to be admired. Movies today would be a lot better if more directors stood up for themselves and demanded that their vision be allowed to be put on screen. And I think that's definitely a calling point towards me. But I think that he's just a fascinating human being as well. That's why he's my favorite. Now that I've seen a lot of Stanley Kubrick films, obviously there's a few I have not seen. We didn't even talk about A Clockwork Orange. I mean, that's such a a controversial movie in itself, along with Lolita for the area. I mean, that you could have just went hours on that one. But I always thought to myself now, because I just recently watched Eyes Wide Shut too, how that movie would have changed if Stanley Kubrick was able to finish it before his death. Um, He had finished it. He passed away shortly before its debut. The movie that would have been interesting for him to get done if he would have been alive would have been Artificial Intelligence. As critical as I can be of Steven Spielberg, Steven Spielberg is one of the biggest Kubrick disciples. While he was tapped by Stanley's wife to direct Artificial Intelligence, And that is the most Kubrick movie not directed by Stanley. Steven Spielberg did a masterful job. And what a great compliment, uh, Steven Spielberg, to be asked by his widow to finish that out. It was amazing. I don't even know if I could talk about that particular movie because that movie, Artificial Intelligence, the whole story of that movie, it affects me so deeply. I sob at least an hour after I watch that movie. That movie is amazing to me in so many ways. And it's a Steven Spielberg movie, but it's Steven Spielberg, but you could feel Stanley's hand on his shoulder. Great way to end uh, Stanley Kubrick, a great director. And who knows, we might come back down the road and revisit Stanley Kubrick. I mean, that's the great thing about doing this podcast is just because we did the four movies of him this time doesn't mean we won't come back down the road and do another four movies of his. He does have more to offer. And on that note, we want to thank you guys for tuning in to the Drive-In Movie Feature Review. Next time, we'll be focusing on a new director. We don't know who that director is. We actually have been 
debating back and forth on it, but stay tuned. That should be coming out shortly. But in the meantime, we want to, again, say thank you. Be sure to check us out on Facebook. We also have a Twitter feed. It is at N underscore feature. Make sure you check us out, like us, follow us. There's more to come, and we look forward to seeing you very shortly. Talk to you guys later. See you at the movies. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.